0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Catholic Opinion. My name is Father Anthony Sumich of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. And here in Auckland, we're bringing you the show, Catholic Opinion. So let's begin today's show with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same Spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So, once again, as I said, my name is Father Anthony Sumich. I'm a priest of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. uh, And we work in the Auckland Diocese here as part of our apostolate to bring the Latin Mass in this uh, in the Catholic Diocese of Auckland and all the information uh, about our apostolate is or can be found on our website at uh, fssp.nz or at our Facebook page fsspauckland So during this time of uh, COVID lockdowns and coming out of lockdowns and how many people are allowed in church and is church open and so on and so forth, there's quite a bit of information uh, that needs to be found out by someone if they want to come along to our apostolate out here in Te So you can find that information on our website. As of uh, in a few days uh, from midnight Sunday, of course, here in Auckland, we leave level three of lockdown to go to level two. What this means is that churches will be open for the public. Uh, so our church will be unlocked during the day and that at Mass times uh, we'll be moving from our COVID Mass times which has been 8am every day, uh, we're going to change that back to our normal Mass times during weekdays or work days, so that means Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday 7am, Thursday, Friday 7pm and Saturday 8am, now Sunday Mass is because it is restricted to only 10 people in the church, uh, we're going to keep that one Mass at 8 o'clock because it would be Uh, kind of not really much use to be able to have a whole lot of or three masses and only end up having 10 people at each mass so there would be a total of 30 people who would be in the church attending so what we'll do is we'll keep that one mass at 8am if more than 10 people turn up they're going to have to stand outside the church uh, obviously keeping that social distancing but those inside the church I'll give priority to the elderly only Um, and so we're not going to be having a sign up for that Sunday mass but the elderly will be able to be seated inside the church and then communion can be given at the front door of the church after mass uh with uh, observing all social distancing and so on and so forth now i have put up inside the chapel uh and also at mount saint mary's uh, which will under which will be still under the same type of uh rules for the lockdown we have put up qr codes so we um, encourage everybody to get the covid app so that if you do come into the church you basically just quickly take in the qr code onto your app so that at least records you came into the church at this time and at this day. I'm not making this of obligation to anybody, but it's just a lot easier than having to write your name down, write your email down, write your phone number down every time you come inside the church. So. As most of you know, um, large numbers of New Zealanders do have that um, that app on their phones and it just records if they have gone into a supermarket or gone into a petrol station or gone into a church or something like that. So we encourage people um, in, order to, uh, in order to make life a little bit easier in terms of the records of who's been in church and who were they next to and so on and so forth. If you could get that COVID app onto your phone, it makes it a lot easier for us uh, having to keep records of everybody. So that's the way things are looking. Uh, with regards to the sacraments in the next week or two and as we know this is quite fluid it could move um down to level one or it could go back to level three or level four we're just obviously we're at the the whim of what the government are suggesting at this point in time but as of monday Monday morning we'll go back to our normal as i said normal times during the week at 7 a.m masses on monday tuesday wednesday normally we'd only have uh, around 10 people for that mass. Thursday and Friday evenings might be a little bit more difficult. At the moment, I'm not going to go to a sign-up sheet. We'll probably just keep that one and first and first serve because that may only be for a week or two. And um, and as for the Sundays, it will be the elderly that will will let into the church. I um, guess there are probably only going to be a few of them anyway. And um, we'll see for the following week if we'll move to solemn masses, which is... Um, quite a possibility that we will. So with all that having been said, a reminder to everybody uh, about the good news that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago about the forthcoming ordination of um, Deacon Roger Gilbride to the Presbyterate and also Mr. Brennan Boyce to the Diaconate that um, uh, thanks to the um, kind gesture by... The retired Bishop of Hamilton, Bishop Dennis Brown, he has agreed to perform the ordination in the extraordinary form. And uh, that will be done at St. Benedict's Church in Newton on Saturday, the third of October, we hope and pray that by that time the beginning of october we 're down to no restrictions so that we can fill the church and If we are under restrictions we 'll have up to possibly one hundred or who knows maybe even very few, but we shall see as the time rolls around, we need to keep this in our prayers for both of them they 've been doing their retreat this last week, just finished their retreat as this very day as you are listening to the show, so they 've finished their canonical retreat and uh, thank everybody for the prayers that you've offered up for them. And uh, we hope that this event goes ahead. It'll be great for the church in New Zealand to see two New Zealand-born men get ordained to higher orders. So please keep them in your prayers over this next month as they work towards that uh, ordination and the church gets another priest and another transitory deacon who will have to be a deacon for a minimum of six months before stepping up to his priestly ordination. So having spoken quite a bit there on the the general uh, events and things happening uh, around our our apostolate and our chapel here in New Zealand, um, we're going to turn over now to church history where we've been uh, working our way through the long um, 13th century and the climax of Christendom and the growth of um, an increased degree of holiness within the church and, But also looking at the difficulties, the constant battling between the emperors, the German emperors and the papacy, and, and at the same time also the breakaway, uh, now a couple of centuries old, between the Eastern schismatics and the church and the attempts of various popes to try and get things brought back together, reconciliation of peace between the East and the West. And we had spoken about that at the end of um, last show that the pope had known about uh, emperor michael and um that this was probably not going to work out so well I remember we're talking about a time some 700 years ago where there was the communication took months and sometimes the communication broke down through translations and a lot so the um <clears throat> The Easterners were being represented by Emperor Michael Palliogos, and he had written a letter uh, to Pope Urban IV, and Pope Urban IV had not made a reply to him for nearly a year. So um, in July of 1262, the Pope made an alliance with Baldwin II, who was the ex-Latin Emperor of Constantinople, um, with the redoubtable Prince William uh, of Achia. And with the wealthy Venetians against the Greek schismatics of the Byzantine Empire, the Pope released William from the oath that he had taken not to bear arms against the Byzantines as a condition of his release by Michael after two years in captivity, following his humiliating capture under a pile of hay, following the disastrous Battle of Pelagonia. But having brought the alliance together, Pope Urban IV did not press it into action, and it was Michael who acted first. Early in 1263, Michael Paliogos sent an army under his brother Constantine which attacked Williams' capital of Andravida, uh, defended in Williams' absence by a dauntless knight named John Cutavas, whom we are told, and maybe with some exaggeration, um, put to fight, flight the attacking army of 15,000 with only 300 men. So th- there may have been some degree of exaggeration there, of course. On July 18... Um, in the year 1263, Pope Urban IV finally sent what was, so far as we know, his first written communication to Michael Paliogos. Um Michael had written him again in the spring, this time declaring specifically that he would accept the Pope's judgment in all disputes that might arise between him and the Latins. Urban expressed satisfaction with this, admitted that some Latins in Constantinople had been actuated by greed and had sinfully profaned Greek churches and said that if Michael would end the schism the Pope would probably recognize him as emperor in the east if he would stop the war against William in Greece. A few days later the Pope wrote to William telling him that he was sending several Franciscan friars to lead to unity if possible Michael Paliogos who considered himself emperor of the Greeks. And directing William to refrain from hostilities against Michael until his religious intentions became clear, so this letter crossed with another Mike, another from Michael, born by Nicholas of Durazzo on the coast of Epirus, now Albania. Bishop of Cotrona an official of the Papal Curia, and bilingual in Greek and Latin, and the number of people who were bilingual in this, whose language was diminishing greatly, whom Michael had invited to Constantinople the previous year and who had much impressed him. Michael credited Nicholas with convincing him that the Pope was the divinely appointed head of the whole church and that there was no significant difference in doctrine between Greeks and Latins. Michael Pelagius pledged for himself and for his clergy and empire full willingness to submit the papal authority and the end and to end the schism it sounded magnificent but the pope was still doubtful especially when he received reports that the Byzantines were continuing to make war in William's domains in the Peloponnese regardless of their emperor's sentiments now of course this is one of the problems of 13th century communications sometimes these things can take months on end Thomas Aquinas' treatise on the errors of the Greeks completed about this time could also well have caused Urban IV to doubt that there were in fact no significant theological differences between the schismatic Greek Church and the Catholic Church. In the summer of 1264, Urban sent Bishop Nicholas back to Constantinople with an offer to convoke an ecumenical council to settle the issues dividing the Greek Church from the Church of Rome. Right. So, so far, that starts to look um, quite promising. And quite simply, history says that at this point in time, there was really a window opening for a possibility of um, some a possible end of the schism. Nonetheless, let's switch our uh, narrative over to the western part of Europe and see how things were going there. Now, during the first six months of his pontificate, Urban IV took no action on the still-simmering dispute between Henry III of England and the nobles who had insisted on reform of the English government. Momentum was now on Henry's side. As soon as he had in hand Pope Alexander IV's bull absolving him from his oath to support the provisions of Oxford and Westminster, Henry III replaced the Justiciar and the Chancellor who had been selected only with the consent of the barons, by nominees of his own choosing. Soon afterward, he also removed the sheriffs and custodians of castles chosen by the Baronial Council of Fifteen, replacing them also with his own personal appointees. In September of 1261, Simon de Montfort, the Earl of Gloucester and the Bishop of Worcester, summoned a parliament of three knights from each shire to meet at St Albans without any reference to the king. Henry ordered them to meet at Windsor instead. Confused and fearful, most of the knights did not assemble at either place. By October, the king's agents had completely separated Simon and the Earl of Gloucester. Gloucester came to terms with Henry while Simon departed in disguise for France, saying he preferred to die without a country than as a perjurer to desert the truth. Richard of Cornwall was accepted as arbiter between the king and the barons, while Henry sent off messengers to Pope Urban IV, asking him to renew Alexander's bull, Alexander the bull, absolving him from his oath to uphold the provisions of Oxford. Urban did so on February 25, 1262, on the grounds that the oaths inter, in, interfered interfered with the king's liberty. And in May, Richard, as arbiter, ruled that Henry could choose. Whomever he wished as sheriff, regardless of any previous agreements, the contrary. All the barons but Simon de Montfort, who was remaining in France, accepted Richard's decision. It appeared that the great reform movement was dead in the water. But it was not. Simon de Montfort had lit a fire in England, which was never to be put out. Launching that country on the long road to creating the first true national parliamentary government since the Roman Republic of Cicero's day. Simon would not be reconciled to the full restoration of Henry III's misused power. St. Louis IX had to report that he could find no way to peace between the two men. Increasingly apprehensive, in March 1263, Henry demanded oaths of loyalty from the barons, the counties and all the citizens of London. In April, Simon returned to England at the urging of many of the barons and met with the new Earl of Gloucester. His father had suddenly died the preceding year at the age of only 40 and renewed with him and others the earlier oath to treat as enemies, all opposing the provisions of Oxford. In May, the oath takers issued a written demand to the king that he renew his commitment to the provisions of Oxford. No doubt, and he did, Henry refused. His refusal meant war. By early June, fighting had begun. The barons had allied themselves with the redoubtable Prince Llewellyn of Wales, a longtime and successful foe of Henry III, and Simon roused the people of London, where the royal family had taken refuge in the Tower. In mid-July, Queen Eleanor, wife of Henry III and mother of the able and increasingly influential Crown Prince Edward, attempted to escape from the tower up the Thames River to join her son at Windsor. She was bombarded from London Bridge by a mob, first with eggs and then with rocks. Though Mayor Fitz Thomas of London, a strong supporter of Simon de Montfort, came promptly to her rescue, Prince Edward never forgave this insult to his mother. But for the time being, Henry III, almost without military support, had no choice but to accept all the demands of Simon and his associates. The most important being the restoration of the agreements made at Oxford in 1258. Though the Council of Fifteen was supposed to be restored, in fact, Simon de Montfort was now the leader of England. On July 22, he entered London and Henry III and Queen Eleanor retreated to Westminster. Early in August, Prince Edward surrendered Windsor Castle to Simon. The restoration of the reform was solemnly confirmed by a parliament called, however reluctantly, by Henry III in September of 1263. Meeting again in October, Parliament refused to permit Henry to choose even the officers of his own household, since some of them were among the chief officers of the realm or to pay for the cost of property of the king's supporters destroyed or damaged during the battles and raids of June and July. Tempers flared furiously on both sides. In the midst of this, Prince Edward struck, coolly and decisively, regaining control of Windsor Castle near London and using it to block the movement of supplies for London down the Thames. Henry III withdrew his recognition of Fitz Thomas as Mayor of London and in mid-November dismissed the Chancellor favoured by the Barons, Nicholas of Ely and appointed the Royalist, John of Chisholm in his place. A renewal of the war seemed imminent. Both Urban IV and King St. Louis IX of France were resolved to prevent this if they could. Both were convinced that Simon de Montfort and the Barons had gone too far. Particularly in prohibiting their king from choosing officials of his own household. Parliamentary government seemed to them a prescription for anarchy, for the destruction of civilized and Christian order. If Henry III had not been so politically inept, he could surely have worked out a compromise. But once he had been forced into an agreement with the barons, all he ever did was try to find ways to break it. Consequently, The basic issue of royal versus parliamentary power kept recurring in its most stark form. Pope Urban IV was a good man, but of limited imagination and ability. St. Louis IX was a great man and a saint, but neither had a mind which could leap out of its own time and cultural conditioning. Simon de Montfort had a mind which could and did do just that. On November 22... 1263, Pope Urban IV sent Cardinal Guy Fulcodi to London as his legate to restore peace in England and to restore Henry III to the control of the government of England with the help of St. Louis IX. Cardinal Fulcodi was given authority to release Henry III from any and all of his oaths to the barons, to punish those who opposed them, to dissolve all leagues of nobles against the king, and if necessary, to preach a crusade against the barons continuing to reject Henry's authority so heavy stuff. Probably knowing or suspecting that he carried such instructions, the Barons refused to admit Cardinal Foucaulti to England, an act which sealed their fate. No one in 13th century Western Europe could defy the Pope so openly and get away with it. Surprisingly, particularly after their refusal to admit the papal legate into England, the Barons agreed on December 13 to the arbitration of their entire dispute with Henry III by St. Louis IX of France, whose fame for justice, wisdom, temperance and charity had long caused them to be greatly in demand as an arbiter. The issue in England had gone beyond arbitration, but the barons did not fully understand that. Though they knew the Pope was hostile, they seemed not to have realised that Louis IX also had turned against them. Simon de Montfort later argued that he had not intended the arbitration to apply to the whole quarrel but only to its most recent developments. And in person, he might have been able to persuade Lewis to accept this interpretation of his jurisdiction, for Lewis greatly respected him. But on his way through England to the Channel ports and France, Simon was thrown from his horse and suffered a badly broken leg. He was unable to walk or ride for months. The argument before Lewis took place without him And the decision Lewis handed down on January 13, 1264, was a heavy blow to Simon and his cause. St. Louis ruled that Henry had the right to govern his kingdom and appoint his own officials. And that the provisions of Oxford were null and void because condemned by the Pope. But he did declare that royal privileges and charters issued in England before the provisions of Oxford, chiefly the Magna Carta, must be upheld. And that for the sake of concord in the kingdom, Henry III should pardon the barons who had supported the provisions of Oxford, for they were no ordinary rebels. Simon and the barons, along with the City of London, refused to give up their cause even in the face of papal authority as exerted through Cardinal Fulcordia's legate and of the arbitration authority of Louis IX. Such a surrender was certainly a great deal to ask of them, but the consequences of defiance were fatal. They manifested themselves very soon when the baronial army sacked Rochester on Good Friday 1264 and looted even the church of St. Andrew there. And savage anti-Jewish pogroms broke out in London. Simon, the great general, won in May what appeared to be a decisive victory at Luz, capturing Henry III and his brother Richard of Cornwall and their sons Prince Edward and Henry of Almain gave themselves up as hostages in their place. So, that is, their sons, Prince Edward and Henry of Almain, gave themselves up as hostages for Henry III and Richard of Cornwall. Simon continued to bar the papal legate from the country. Cardinal Foucaulti demanded admission on pain of excommunication. When Simon still refused, he was excommunicated and London was laid under an interdict. On October 2nd, 1264, Pope Urban IV died at Perugia after a short illness. On October 21st, Cardinal Foucaulti excommunicated the other chief opponents of Henry III in addition to Simon de Montfort and ordered the excommunication proclaimed throughout France and England. The bishops carrying the excommunication were seized on landing in England and the the decree was torn up and thrown into the sea. (coughs) One of Urban IV's last acts as Pope was to issue the bull Transitoris, instituting a new feast of the body of Christ known as Corpus Christi whose celebration he made obligatory for the entire church. A whole new office or liturgy was written for the feast. It was ready when Transiturus was issued, August 11, 1264. It was avowed at a Dominican general chapter held at Vienne in 1322 that this liturgy was written by St. Thomas Aquinas, and the preponderance of evidence indicates that this arbitration is correct this Corpus Christi liturgy includes the magnificent sequence Lauda Sion, the Vespers hymn Pange Lingua concluding with the Tantum Ergo sung during benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, the Matins hymn Sacris Solemnis concluding with Panis Angelicus, and the Lord's hymn Verbum Supernum Prodiens concluding with another Benedictine song O Salutaris Hostia. familiar for centuries to every Catholic These glorious Latin hymns continue to be widely sung today. The common doctor of the church did not write only for scholars in the office of Corpus Christi. He wrote for the simple Catholic worshipper throughout the ages. So the conclave to elect a new pope met at Perugia in Italy where Pope Urban IV had died at the end of October in 1264. 18 of the 21 cardinals were present. And they were, they were almost evenly divided between supporters and opponents of the most politically significant undertaking of the previous pontificate, the invitation to Charles of Anjou, brother of St. Louis the Knight of France, to accept the crown of Sicily. So as we've seen, the infamous Emperor Frederick II had been hereditary king of Sicily. He'd grown up in Sicily's capital Palermo. His legitimate son, Conrad, had claimed Sicily, despite the insistence of Pope Innocent IV, that the whole Hohenstaufen family had forfeited their rights in Sicily in view of the magnitude of Frederick II's challenge to the Church and Christendom. When Conrad died, his infant son, Conradin, inherited his claim. But it was not then pressed because of his age. Frederick II's illegitimate son, Manfred, had taken over Sicily. Pope Alexander IV, seeking to displace Manfred, had unwisely turned to Henry III of England, who proved totally incapable of acting in any capacity in Sicily. Pope Urban IV had considered the possibility of peace with Manfred, and in November 1262 had offered to recognize Manfred as kin of Sicily if he would readmit the many political exiles driven out during the long struggle of its Hohenstaufen rulers against the popes and restore their lands and pay a large indemnity the Pope in view of the immense cost of the wars against the Hohenstaufens in Sicily. When Manfred refused these terms, his excommunication was renewed, and in the following spring, Pope Urban IV opened negotiations with Charles. Charles of Anjou was strikingly different from his brother, St. Louis IX, though they had one fundamental aspect in common. Louis was blonde, slender, handsome, gentle of mien, "'Though firm and decisive in policy, "'known throughout Christendom for his kindness and charity, "'a crusader but not a general. "'Charles was tall, muscular, dark-complexioned, "'with a big nose and a thundercloud often on his brow, "'known for his harshness, feared for his occasional cruelty. "'He was a strong man, brave as a lion, "'steadfast and persevering. "'He said little, slept little, "'lost no time in diversions,' living a chaste and tightly disciplined life. He was a mighty warrior, but no crusader. During his long and active career as Prince of Christendom, he never set foot in the Holy Land. Strangely, few men loved Charles of Anjou. All men respected him and many feared him. What he and Lewis shared was the pearl of great price, a rock-like faith, the kind that would stand though the heavens fell. In June of 1263, Pope Urban IV's envoy had offered Charles of Anjou the crown of Sicily and southern Italy, except for Benevento and its environs, on condition that he guarantee the freedom of the church in his kingdom, that he pay make large payments for it to the Pope and offer him the homage of vassal to Lord, that he swear it, swear it should never again be united with the empire and that the exiles and their property should be restored. Charles would be expected to attack Manfred as soon as possible. The campaign would be proclaimed a crusade with support from the crusading tenth of the income of the church in France for three successive years. But Charles had disturbed Pope Urban IV by accepting the office of Senator of Rome for life. Rome had become so turbulent in recent years that most of the time the popes dared not live there. Urban IV spent most of his pontificate in Perugia, he did not want Charles involved in Roman politics, certainly not for life. And some of his cardinals disliked this prospect even more than he. Charles finally agreed to give up the office of senator when he had gained control of the Kingdom of Sicily and southern Italy. But by the time of Urban IV's death, negotiations with Charles were still going on in France and he was gaining much influence in Italian politics. As tended to happen so readily in Italy, parties formed for and against him, And their reflection among the cardinals deadlocked the conclave for electing the next pope. So with time running out today, that's where we are going to leave our history of the Catholic Church right at this key moment with things very much heating up in England, things heating up in southern Italy, things heating up with the conclave. All and things also on a knife edge with the Eastern Church. So we'll come back to this again next week. Hopefully, you all have a blessed week coming up, uh, especially those of you here in Auckland as we go out of level three into level two and are able to get back into our churches and get those sacraments. So once again, keep an eye on our website at fssp.nz. You're able to receive all the sacraments at St. Anne's. So um, we'll conclude with a quick prayer. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, as now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May God bless and keep you all. Amen.